Guys, welcome back to the Bomb Podcast. Um, we have the privilege today to have a friend and a maestro in the industry with us who started out from the bottom of the ladder and he's going to tell us more about that and his road to unprecedented stardom in the, in the publishing world. <laughs> now, John uh, Fishlock, um, welcome to the Bomb Podcast. Thank and, you. Um, we, uh, we're privileged to have you here today. Without further ado, please tell us a little bit about your story. Oh, well, my story um, started from in the UK. <clears throat> and having, having left college with a, with a political diploma and an economics diploma and a physical education diploma, I decided to go and be a motorcycle courier for a music company. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Take note. So using, Take using, no, we can stop here. <laughs> using all my fine education to actually jump on a motorbike and deliver packages. Now, the, the, the company that I was working for at the time was called Aerodel, and they basically had um, 16 composers that they had contracted, and they were delivering, or they were, their composers were writing, and they were delivering music for film, television, and jingles, et cetera, oh. et cetera. Um, and fortuitously for me, I got to meet some, some of the most incredible composers of all time. Um, on their roster was a guy called Stanley Myers who wrote Cavatina for the Deer Hunter. Wow. Um, then there was a young guy who was um, wet behind the ears and was a, was a techno geek keyboard player with his little synthesizer, and his name was Hans Zimmer. Oh, oh all right. Uh, not a heard of him. <laughs> sounds sounds <laughs> vaguely familiar. Um, and he and I became. Sounds like. <laughs> he and I, he wow. and I became really good friends, actually. We, and, and to this day, you know, we still keep in contact. And he's obviously he's sort of risen to meteoric fame, yeah. uh, and super talented. But he's still a really wonderful human being. Sure. And then there was a guy called Roger Greenaway who wrote the song "I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing," which was um, a global global hit, um, and was the Coca Cola theme for about five years. Um, Wow. Massive song. And he went on to write most of the Drifters hits, most of the Fortunes hits, and, you know, was a superstar. And there was like sort of, a, as I say, there were 16 composers and they all had their own little sort of um, forte and, and, and expertise and were also hugely successful as well. So that was a great sort of opportunity to, you know, drive around London delivering tapes in the, in the pouring rain and the wind of London. Uh, but at the same time, get to know and work work with some really amazing people, and you know, again, I, I keep contact with most of them still. You know, they're, wow. they're great, great people. But from there, I then moved. Um, I migrated, and went into the um, studio where I was offered a job as to be trained as an engineer at Air Studios in London, which was at the time, at the time, was probably one of the most um, mm. prestigious studios. Yeah. You know, and it had, you know. You, you walk in there and there was always someone of a huge major stature who was working in the studio doing an album. Um, and they had, there was Air Montserrat, there was Air London, and then there was another studio in Labrador Grove in London, which was <clears throat> part, all part of the Air Group. But I was trained as an engineer at, at Air Studios in London, which is Oxford Street. And again, you know, I was privileged to work with the likes of McCartney and uh, George Martin, or the late George Martin, I should say. Um, we did... Ain't Nobody with Chaka Khan in, at that studio, which was, again, one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had in my wow. musical career. Yeah. And, you know, and Alchemy Live, you know, Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler. You know, I was oh, on that project for about eight Incredible. weeks. Um, so, again, it was, it was a really interesting, interesting 
sort of um, apprenticeship in a way, you know, getting, yeah. got to, getting to know some amazing people, getting to know how the studio works at the top level, which is great. So, you know, having realised that I'm never going to spend the rest of my life in a studio because it just wasn't, you know, it was fascinating and a great experience, but I knew that I was not going to, it was, wasn't going to be a career in the studio. So I left and um, made myself unemployed for a couple of months, just took some time off because we were working seven days a week, as a studio does, <laughs> 16 hours a day sleeping in the studio because the taxi back home would take too much of my sleep time up. So, <laughs> so many, many a night on the couch in the studio was, was, uh, was my life. I thought, you were going, uh, I thought you were now going to say it would take too much of your money to drive home. <laughs> <laughs> that was also true in those days. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, so I, I made myself unemployed. I'd spent some time off and went to America and then came back and then went down to my local pub and bumped into a guy called Stuart Slater, who at the time was the managing director of Chrysalis Music Publishing. And he was having a drink with his girlfriend, who happened to be a session singer that I happened to get to know in my very first job at Airedale, when she was doing a session, and, she, and I just got him to know Stephanie, and I said, Stephanie, that's you, and this is Stuart, and so he and I got talking, and he said, oh, well, my general manager has just left. Um, I'm looking for someone to take over as, uh, as a... As a publishing manager, would you be interested? So I said, well, I don't know anything about publishing, but hey, why not <laughs> give it a go? <laughs> so that got me into publishing. And from there on, it was like that I stayed there because I just felt very comfortable. I loved working with songs. I loved working with songwriters. Um, it was, it had a very different approach to being a, a, an A&R manager in a record company, whereas you're, you're judged on your last record. And if the record is, is a failure, then there's nothing you can do about it. And if you have two or three failures, then you're out of a job. But with publishing, a song is a, a great song is a great song. And if it doesn't work with that artist, it can work with somebody else. So it has, it has an infinite possibility, a song. Mm, yeah. um, and then coupled with the fact that composers tend to have less egos than artists which is much more enjoyable to work with. <laughs> that will not be edited. It's going on record. Yeah. So, um, edit it. <laughs> so, yeah, I landed in publishing and, it, was, and it, was, it felt good. I enjoyed working in publishing. I got to know some amazing writers. Um, out of it, I, I, I was one of, the, one of our up-and-coming, wet-behind-the-ears writers was a guy called Simon Climey. Wow. And at that time, Simon was just very much, very young and very eager to learn. And we loved his music and we loved his songs. So we sent him to Nashville and uh, we put him into songwriting collaborations, et cetera, et cetera. He came back. And one of the songs that Kay came back with, um, we all were just literally um, falling over. It was just the most incredible song we've heard for, from anybody for a long time. So we decided to send it over to Clive Davis and Clive Davis was the uh, president of Arista Records in New York at the time. And it landed on his desk on the day that he was looking for a song for Aretha Franklin. So he said, this is perfect. Uh, I'm going to get Aretha and George Michael to sing it. And the song was, what? I knew you were waiting for me. And that was my first number one in publishing. Oh, <laughs> what a story. So wow. that was amazing. Wait, what year was this? Oh, blimey. You're asking me now. Um, I actually don't know. I can't remember. It must have, it must have been... Mid-80s, maybe? Mid-80s, yeah. Mid probably early, early to mid-80s oh, okay. was around the time. And, of course, that was a meteoric frame. And, and one, of the, one of the most incredible things about that was that we had been pushing Simon so hard with the record labels, trying to get his songs placed 
with an artist here or an artist there. You know, that single came out. It was obviously a global number one. And all of a sudden, everyone was right, calling us saying, has Simon got any new songs? Yeah. So what we did, we just farmed out all the old songs that we used to be. <laughs> and they got them placed, you know, and, and we had a string of top five hits in the UK on the back of, of, his, of his back catalogue. Oh, wow. And of course, then, you know, he signed, a, then it was Climby Fisher, oh. had, his, had his own record deal with EMI, and then, you know, the rest is history. But, you know, that was the, that was the catalyst for his career, you know, and it was also, you know, for us, it was just the most amazing number one to have. What a song. So yeah, I mean that that was that was my experience of publishing, and uh, so I thought I like this, I'll stay in it. So I went from there. I went went from Chrysalis. I then got poached and employed by MCA Music Publishing. Had three and a half glorious years there, and then I London based, all London based, yeah, all London based. And then I got clever and thought I'm going to actually do this myself and have my own publishing company and management company. So the my partner at MCA and I, we both left and we started up our own publishing company and we foolishly attached a management company to it. Um, our first signing was a, a female singer called Harriet Roberts from Sheffield, an incredible voice, an amazing songwriter. We got her a record deal with Warners Worldwide within about a month. Um, we spent six months making the record, taking on a writing trip to LA and New York and Nashville and across Europe made an amazing album. Um, album was a priority worldwide by Warner, uh, released the first single and Harriet decided she was gonna get together with a boyfriend and dig her head in a bag of cocaine and a bottle of Jack Daniels. And she basically, from the moment, from the launch of the single, she was incapable of singing because she just was so drugged and drunk. Yeah. And she killed her career. She got dropped by Warners and we, I suppose, stupidly, put all our eggs in one basket and we basically went bankrupt. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and we're out of work. And fortunately for me, um, Polygram Music Publishing, um, which had started about six months prior to the company going bust, they were looking for new people. So they offered me a job. So I was back in publishing, working for a major company. Um, and that was, again, was another three and a half years of absolute bliss. Um, again, we, I knew we, we, it was in Polygram's heyday and the Polygram Group's heyday, where the, nothing they put out was less than a huge hit. You know, whether it was Swing Out Sister or it was Wet, Wet, Wet or it was James or I mean, everything we released was huge. And the publishing side was, was all part of that as well. And we, I mean, we signed Lighthouse Family, um, which is a massive global hit. We had, um, uh, who did we have? Um, I'm trying to think now. Um, Norman Cook. We had Was Not Was. We had some huge UK and European hits and, and American artists as well. Um, and one of the things, and I, I personally was picked by Van Morrison to look after Van Morrison. Wow. <laughs> there were two people in, poly, in, the, in the global polygram group that he, talked, that he would talk to, me and a guy called John Waller. Maybe he likes John, I don't know. Maybe he does. Oh, my goodness. So, and they, of course, that was a great, a great privilege and a great experience to work with uh, sort of someone of that, of that calibre and that stature. It was, was just absolutely brilliant. But also Polygram were also in getting into films, so I started working um, as a, like a music supervisor on behalf of the Polygram group for their film companies, and one of the film companies they bought was Working Title. And one of the first films I worked on 
was four weddings and a funeral. What? And that was the th iconic experience. And it was the first time I'd actually really done it properly. You know, where I'd worked from, I got the script, I worked with the director, I worked with the producer, we mapped out where we're going to have music. I then put um, various ideas for various scenes that we'd mapped out. And we sat down and we said, okay, we'll have that one, we'll have that one, we'll have that one. And then we put it in the film and we looked at the soundtrack at the end of the day and we thought, well, you know, the Trogs, love is all around. And then Barry Manilow and an old Elton John hit, you know, it doesn't make for a terribly commercial album. So what should we do? Let's go and re-record them. So that's how Love is All Around got to Wet, Wet, Wet. What? I took it to them. They said, yeah, we'll do it. And then the rest is history. The this biggest hit they've ever had. What a beautiful story. Yeah, I mean, so, and it's, and it's all, yeah, yeah. it's all about being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And this industry is basically what that is about. You know, you can be, you can be the best in the world, but a little bit of luck is what you need. Well, this is this is the wisdom we we need you to punch at the end. But yeah. you know, uh, uh, repetition brings. What's the Afrikaans saying? Herhalen bring vastlegging. Repetition. Yeah. Uh, repetition is the mother of all skill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, fascinating. So yeah, that was. I mean, so from there as well, I, I then got did other other films with with working title. One of them was Jack and Sarah, which is another European huge success, which is great. And that that one catapulted Lighthouse Family throughout Europe, because up to that point, they'd had great success in the UK. Mm. But that particular film and the use of Ocean Drive in one particular poignant scene, when the film broke in Europe and was a huge success, that was the track that sort of catapulted Lighthouse Family into the European market. So it's sort of, it, and it just shows you know, what, what music can do and what the synergy of music and, and visual can yes. do in order to enhance Absolutely. not only the movie itself, but also to help the career of the of the, of the artist or the yeah. band. Yeah. So that was you know that that was my Polygram days, and then I got posted to Polygram in Germany to do a similar sort of thing. Um, but this time I was working for the record company and for the publishing company. And the idea was to try and synergize the master rights and the publishing rights and get them into the, into the sort of the German film and television market, which was a challenge. I have to say, that was a, it was a very, very tough job. It didn't not enjoy it. It was good, but, you know, firstly, the language barrier was, was tough. Um, I did learn German, and that they do speak very good English. But there's also a mentality thing. You know, it's, you know their, their perception of what music, what music goes well with their visuals is very different to how I saw it. And so we always had this, this tug of war as to what I felt they needed and what they felt they needed. And it was a, it was a very tough challenge. We had a few successes, but nothing of any great magnitude. Um, and then I just happened to be offered a job by Polygram to start Polygram Music in South Africa. So that's actually what then brought me over here. Wow. Because obviously post-apartheid, all the record companies got sort of started up again, et cetera, yeah. and they, Polygram, were already back. Um, they'd already started up the record company, but they hadn't started up the publishing company, so they said to me, would you be interested in going over and taking that experience? So, so this would be somewhere in the 90s then? Post. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been here ever since, right? I mean, that was your move to South Africa. Yeah, basically, that, that was 90... I moved from Germany to South Africa in 96 and started Polygram on the 1st of January, 97. Oh. And then that was... Yeah, that, that 
was then I started from a clean slate of literally no local roster whatsoever and built that up for, I think, 10 years, which then went from Polygram, it then went to Universal because Universal bought the Polygram group. Uh-huh. And then in 2010, no, it's 14 years, in 13 years, in 2010, I left Polygram or Universal and started on my own publishing company, Active Music, which is where I am now. Wow. Just how you know me. Definitely. So that's a that's a, 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 a elongated potted history. It's a fascinating history, my goodness. From from a, driving a, a motorbike, <laughs> yep. delivering um, tapes. Whatever cassette tapes. Deli- cassette cassette tapes. tapes. <laughs> and wow. now the audience wouldn't even know what a cassette tape is. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> well, actually, I think this audience might know. <laughs> if you're listening to this really podcast, you probably will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, John, so maybe just to, to bring it into um, the bigger conversation as well, mm. uh, the, the, you know, the whole business of music that we're talking about, the, you know, the, the online thing, the internet has brought about so many new things um, into the world of music. Yeah. Um, but publishing remains. But maybe just in a nutshell, what exactly is publishing and, you know, why is it important? Publishing is, is essentially the protection and management of the intellectual property of the composer. So a composer writes a song, and that's a copyright. It's a piece of intellectual property. And yes, a composer can look after that, him or herself. There's, no, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. But it's really a question of whether you want someone who knows what they're doing, who can make sure that the song is protected, the song is notified, it's registered, that mm. the income that it is generating is collected correctly, is collected in, in its entirety. Wow. And that ultimately <coughs> the income is processed, it's checked, it's double-checked, the policing of the income is done, and the, at the end of the day, the composer receives his or her royalties for for whatever song in whatever medium, whether it's a performance on radio or whether it's a stream or whether it's being licensed to somebody for use in a commercial or, or a TV program or something. So it's, you know, a publisher essentially manages that on behalf of the composer. There's a, there's a lot of um, misconception about a publisher. People say, you know, I've, I've signed to a publisher and the publisher owns my copyright. The copyright is never owned by a publisher. The publisher is the representative of that copyright, which is owned by the composer or composers. You can never, you never not own your piece of intellectual property. It's it's created by you and therefore it's owned by you. And you're just saying, Mr. Publisher, I'd like you to be the custodian of that copyright on my behalf to make sure that it's managed properly, administered properly, et cetera, et cetera. I remember for me when I was, you know, starting out in in songwriting, um, to, to the kind of paradigm shift that I had to make, understanding that a song wasn't just a song, but it's an asset mm. that can be exploited, um, as opposed to just this emotional thing, you writing a song, but now a publisher comes along and he sees the value of that and he can help the... Absolutely. Look, yeah. there are, there are, essentially there are two sides to publishing. The one is the admin, which is the nuts and bolts. And if you can't get the admin right, if a publisher can't admin correctly, yeah. then everything else you put on top of it is a waste of time. So your, you know, your core business is to make sure that the copyright's protected, the copyright is registered, that every society around the world, every institution around the world, every user around the world knows 
who the composer is, who the publisher is, and where to pay if that copyright earns any money. Wow. So that, you know, you're, you're siphoning or you're, you're chan channeling all that income into the publisher, and the publisher's then collecting it, processing it, making sure it's correct and paying it on. So that's the, that's the, the core side of our business, which is the admin. But the second side is the creative, and that is a publisher should, in my view, if you're going to if you're going to give me your song to look after, I regard that as being a privilege, mm. and for that privilege, I need to bring value to you. Otherwise, why would you bring it to me? Well, mm. so if I can add value, that's the reason why I would like to be your publisher. Mm. If I can't add value, what's the point of having me? Because I'm wasting your time and I'm wasting my time. Yeah. So that comes back to the creative side. And we'll, you know, and the classic example could be a Simon Climbing. It could be Love is All Around, an old, an old 60s song that never reached the top 40 in the UK, suddenly is a number one for wet, wet, wet around the, around the globe. Incredible. Yeah. And, that, and adding that value is what it's all about. Yeah. John, this is amazing. I, can I pull back two steps? Um, <laughs> Oh, do you have to? Oh, I, <laughs> to <simplify it> for <laughs> I think, um, especially recording artists, performing artists, there is an enormous misconception as to what exactly generates income, especially in the, in this era where we've um, transitioned from a physical thing, mm. CD or a cassette or an mm. LP, towards the digital age. And if very often we ask um, musicians, "Are you published?" Mm. Like, like uh, uh, no, you know, you can just see it. It's just question mark. Mm. So the, the the concept of a publisher is a strange concept for many people, mm. for, for composers who understand the value, it is the essence. But can you, in a nutshell, just explain to a normal singer-songwriter, a musician, a composer, where does the money actually come from? Okay, yeah. No. If we do a breakdown of the there, flow of revenue. There are, there are, three, there are three key areas of income. There are, there are four, but the fourth in South Africa is not really very relevant. Um, I'm, I hope sincerely that it becomes relevant again soon, but at the moment it's not, which is called print. And that is the manuscript, the sale of, of, of manuscript, which of course you don't get. But in Europe and in America, it's becoming fast, a, a, a regurgitating income stream because people are downloading from music notes or music sales. Um, and I think that there is a massive market in South Africa for that as well, especially for the likes of your Soweto String Quartets and your, yeah. your um, Miriam McCabers and, you know, your Ladies with Man, Black Man Bosses, where people would love to be able to play those yeah. songs. Yeah. And in order to do that, they need the sheet music. So, you know, it's one of my pioneering things and hopefully one day I'll be able to achieve it is to, is to is to get 5,000 of, of the top South African songs on manuscript into, a, into, a, into the digital arena so the world can actually wow. buy that. But that's, that's one area which I say is, is not relevant at the moment. Hmm. The three key areas are what we what we'd call mechanical income, mm -hmm. there's performance income, and there's licensing. So taking them one at a time, mechanical income, that is the royalty that is designated to a composer for the sale of a record or a stream or a download. All right. The word mechanical 
is very, very specific for publishing. You'll hear record companies use it yeah, yeah, yeah. for record royalties. You'll hear advertising agencies use it for whatever they want to use it for. But the word mechanical actually is a publishing definition. And where the, the word derived from was a mechanical transfer. So from your master tape, mechanically transferred onto your vinyl, there was a royalty for that mechanical transfer. And that's the reason why it was called a mechanical. Um, nowadays, it's you know it's it, the word the phrase is still used, but obviously you, a, a composer is receives a, a mechanical royalty for a sale as opposed for a manufacture. Oh. That's how the, the industry has changed quite a bit. It's probably about and thirty. It's, 30. it's retained the term. Yeah. Yeah, but it's retained the term, and of course, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a download, whether it's a um, a, a stream or a physical sale, there is a, a designated percentage that is allocated to the composer. And the publisher will collect that on behalf of the composer and obviously those monies will be collated, processed and then paid out. So that's the first one. The second is what's called performance income. And for those of you who don't know, performance income from a publishing perspective does not mean we earn money from an artist performing at oh. a venue. It, performance income is for a, a song that is played on the radio, it is broadcast on television, or the venue, in order to have a license to have music performed at their venue, must get a license from Samro. And a portion of that license is then divvied up between all of the people who play within a year at that venue. Oh, wow. So, you know, as a composer. Pro rata. Pro rata, obviously, yeah. 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 Um, if, uh, another example would be if someone plays at the Cape Town, Fest uh, Cape Town Stadium. Let's say Boyzone, for want of a better word. Boyzone were playing at, 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 the, at the stadium. Uh, the stadium would have to get a license from, from Samro, and a portion of that fee will be paid to the composer for all of the songs that are performed at that show. So they don't get any, any of the artist's fee, but they get a portion of the license that's designated for that particular show and all the songs that, were, that are played in that show. Wow. Wow. Um, so and that's so yeah. So there's that. There's obviously radio performance, TV performance, restaurants. They pay a license. Malls pay a license. So any 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 public performance or venue in a public place must have a license to play music, and those monies get put into a big pot and they're prorated out and they're di and they're distributed. Obviously, we can't expect a mall to say we played we played um, Justin Timberlake at ten past three and then. We played Hermit Mayer at half past four. <laughs> they don't do that, but it's put into a big pot and it's prorated out in accordance with an annual earnings report. But other venues, like like your um, Ed Sheeran at the Cape Town Cape Town Stadium, they will send their set list, and there will be particular apportionment of a royalty to the composer for that for that particular show. So that's the admin part, I suppose. That's the admin part. <laughs> <laughs> that's My the... goodness. So that's wow. perform performance income. And then the, the third one, which is obviously very important for us as well, which is what's called licensing. Uh. And licensing is when somebody wants to use a piece of the intellectual property or wants to use the intellectual property for a particular project, yeah. whether it be a film project, a TV project, or an advertising project. If someone wants to use your lyrics in their dissertation. You know, they have to get permission and they have to pay a license. 
Yeah, often with education, we tend to sort of be a little lenient with that. But if someone's, if someone's writing a book, let's say, like a, 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 a fiction book, and they want to use a section of someone's lyrics from a song to describe a scene or to be part of the scene, then they will have to get permission to do that, and there'll have to be a license. And then, you know, you then work out what that fee will be. And it's, it won't be, well, if it's a, a John le Carre book, it will be much bigger than, mm. than uh, someone, a book written by me. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so those are the three areas, the licensing. And uh, you hear the word synchronisation. Synchronisation is essentially where you synchronise the audio with the visual. And so the music plays an integral part of the, of the visual and it, the idea is it, it enhances the visual and they complement each other and obviously makes, makes the, the movie or the advert or the TV scene that much more powerful. Who needs a publisher? Let, let me put it that way. Does every single songwriter, composer need a publisher or who would need a publisher? <sighs> Thank you. Let's move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, and I won't, I won't hide behind it at all. I mean, essentially, if you're asking a publisher who needs a publisher, I say everybody. Yeah. Um, but the, the, truth, the truth is, if, if someone, if, if a composer knows what to do, knows how to do it, and has the time to do it, then yes, they can. You can publish yourself, and you can you can administer yourself, and you can look after yourself. The problem is that if you're just a sole composer, you probably have got the time to do it because you you know you're not going to be writing every single day essentially. So you can put a couple of days a week aside to do your admin and do your notifications and do do all that sort of thing. But your primary job as a composer is to write songs. Yes. So I would say, do what you do best. I've seen, I've seen lots of people in the years that I've been a publisher uh, say, I'm going to publish myself. And I've seen them fail dismally. Mm. Um, they haven't got the time, they haven't got the know-how, they can't bring the extra value for themselves because they're just, you know, they're, they're not that way inclined. Yeah. You know, they're not pushy, they're not hard, they're not great sellers. Um, they also don't know where the money comes from. They don't understand where the money comes from. The learning curve. Um, you know, oh. you've, little things like sort of making sure you get all of your money out of Samro can take weeks of email badgering, phoning badgering. And does a composer really have the time, the inclination and the perseverance to do it? And the answer is no, I don't mm. believe they do. So most people need a publisher because a composer doesn't have... The, the, know, the know-how and the, and the perseverance to, to do what needs to be done. And, you know, the argument that I've heard many times, well, yeah, but, you know, now the publisher takes 15, 20, 30%. Um, but, all right, I can do it myself. But compared to the income generated by myself versus a publisher, that's almost nothing. Yeah, well, the, this, yeah. Is, this, is, this is where it, the, 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 the value add comes in. Exactly. And that, and that needs to be the composer's decision as to whether they believe the person they are going to entrust with their copyrights is going to be able to bring value and add value. Mm. Which, which now leads me to the questions. Somebody 
wants to sing, or they, they may be good at writing you know, songs and lyrics, where and how do they trace a trustworthy publisher? But where do they find? I mean, except you can put your details at the bottom. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, be prepared. Uh, be prepared. No, how how do you find? It, uh, or is that is that something you have to only find out by tri uh, by trial and error? You have to find by trial and error. You know, and I think you you need to sit down with the publisher and you know and talk to them and find out what the, what they're like, find out what sort of music they're into, find out, you know, talk to them about. What they, what sort of value they would like to bring to your career, if they love your songs or not. You know, it's, it's, you know, as with anything, you only want to get involved in something if you like it. You want to buy a car because you like that particular car. Mm, mm. You want to get involved with a with a songwriter because you love the songs that they write. You believe in their songs because that belief is what's going to drive you to do whatever you possibly can to be a success or for that composer to be a success. And the other thing that is important to realise, because you know, I've, I've learned this over the years, it's not that value add is not just a placement in a film or a TV. It's not just a, um, you know, pitching a song to an artist and that song being recorded by another artist and therefore generating income. That value add could be anything. It could be as simple as an introduction to another songwriter that that collaboration suddenly becomes a hit. Wow. It could be going to a record company and getting an artist deal for you, one of your composers, negotiating it and helping negotiate that deal to fruition mm. on behalf of your composer. You know, being there at all points along their career to try and bring that value, bring your experience, bring your knowledge to help them get further in their career. So it's not just a, a money-making exercise. It could be a multitude of things wow. um, that you can do to that, you can do for that composer that helps their career. Yeah. Can I tell a little story? From, from, <laughs> no, I think this is a very practical, yeah. very practical point. I, I mean, it was very, very many years ago, I think in the year 2010, I wrote uh, songs for two uh, big entities. One was for a mine on the Western Coast yeah. and one was for a big uh, retail conglomerate. And I mean, you facilitated all of the negotiations, the yeah. legalities and everything for me. And again, from, a, from exactly what you explained earlier, from a composer point of view, first of all, I knew nothing about the process. Mm. I knew I, um, you know, I had the courage to write the songs and I knew I could probably put out something creative, but for the rest of it, I needed help. Mm. And I mean, if it wasn't for, for a person like yourself who understood the industry and who had the expertise, um, nothing would have come of it. And I mean, or they may have negotiated a very favourable deal for them for and not for you. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and in, in both instances, actually, it's actually more than two instances, it turned out that the process worked out. It to the, I, I trust also for the benefit of them, but definitely myself as a composer mm. now understands the value of a publisher yeah. and, and I wouldn't want to do it myself. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I th with, with those two particular situations, you know, it, it was not a case of bringing me into. To, to nail the deal and screw the client. For sure. It was a case of coming in, getting a, a market-related rate, getting a fair yeah. deal, because as we always want, we would love them to knock on your door again and say, Helmut, the last experience was so good, we'd like you to do it again, because that's, that's what you want to do. You, know? exactly. you want future business out of it. So you don't try and sort of screw your clients. You try and get a deal that's fair, market-related, that also makes them feel comfortable as though they're getting a good situation. And that's just as important as... You know, getting getting a market rate because you want them to come back. 
John, as we said earlier, it sounds like um, publishing is really the heartbeat of, of being a songwriter, composer, you know, and understanding this. So there are so many other questions I have, but time is catching up to us. Um, I want to know, for example, you know, what's a producer's claim to copyright? What's a beat maker's claim? What, what do you think about YouTube and TikTok? I think we, we can pause that for another session altogether. Um, I think so. I, the, the subject of, of a beat maker and a producer is very complex, and it's, it, but it's also incredibly important. Yes. Um, it's something that I have, I, I have literally weekly battles on. Oh, really? Um, and it's and you know and I'm also yeah, from a publishing perspective, I regard myself as being a very purist publisher. You know, I've, I, I live and breathe the ethics of what publishing used to be about, and to my mind, still is about. Mm. But I also represent beat makers and producers. Um, and, but we have we've, we've come to a very very um, good solution as to how to tackle that problem. And it's still, not, it's still being abused left, right and centre globally. But I do believe that what, how I've incorporated it into my business is a very fair and justifiable way. Because it's a grey area. Yeah. Right. It's so grey. It's, it's adaptation, but is it the original musical work? Is it a new thing? Or hmm, Absolutely. And there's, there's also a, a huge misconception about uh, what an arrangement is. And is, is an arrangement a part of a copyright? Oh, exactly. <laughs> if, 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 if I strip away a vocal out of a track or the theme that makes the, the song recognisable per se, can you know, is that still copyrightable, uh, by lack of a better word? You know, what, what I mean is, if it's not recognised per se as a musical work, I can take a guitar, drum and bass track, strip out the vocals or the, the main thematic parts, and it might be so generic, the, the fact is, you know, we're on in the copyright world. No, no. I mean, it's, yeah. difficult. it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult very and complex great. argument. Yeah. You know, and I think you know, something, something like the, um, the lawsuit between Robin Thicke and um, the Marvin Gaye estate and the Farrell Williams is a classic example of that. You know, because the, song, the melody and the lyric of Blurred Lines bore no relation to the Marvin Gaye song whatsoever. The only thing that was, a, was similar was the cowbell rhythm. And since when has a cowbell rhythm ever been a, a copyrightable item? Yeah, that's a little bit funny. <laughs> that is a little bit funny. <laughs> it's a cowbell rhythm. Yeah. And the only reason that the lawyer from the Marvin Gaye estate what? used that as the argument is because Farrell Williams said he was inspired by Marvin Gaye's song. Oh. And if you, listen to, if, you, if you listen to the two pieces, there's, if you look on YouTube, there's lots of comparison things. Oh, right. But there's one particular one which I, I use as, for lectures occasionally where it just segues from one to the other. And the only thing that is similar is the cowboy rhythm. The rest of it is nothing like it whatsoever. Oh. <laughs> cowbell. You know. And, then, cowbell. and, of course, from that, <laughs> from that, it then, it then sort of bodes the question as, uh, well... If I'd written that bass line, ding a 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 ding the blues line, the classic yeah. rock and roll yeah. blues line, if, that, if the cowbell's copyrightable, then surely that bass line is. And then if I'd written that bass line, I'd be in probably just about every single top five hit around the world in the 60s. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, we need to speak about that as well. You know, when does it go into public domain and it becomes accessible mm. and... Um, Yo, I think we should park it here, and uh, <laughs> because there's, there's so much to there's so much to process, you know, in a sense. And maybe for yeah. a second episode, we uh, we bring on a, a number of practical hand-on questions. For example, yes. uh, yeah, you know, I'm just thinking of so many people that we work with as, as record producers, as composers, that you know, it's such a weird concept for them. But I understand the the value that that this needs to be spoken up about. Mm. Um, about the value of um, having a publisher and having the right publisher and understanding the relationship between the publisher and the composer. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so John, thank you so much. I, I was wondering maybe a parting shot from your side. Um, Another one. <laughs> one more piece. One more. Yeah, one, one, one more. Last one. One more. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for a new artist, maybe not for a new artist, maybe someone that's been in the game for years, but they've mm. never considered um, publishing. What would you tell them? If, uh, if you wanted to contract Red and some legal advice, you would go to a lawyer. If you wanted your tax return done or your annual returns done, you would go to an accountant. So if you want your publishing done, you go to a publisher. It's as simple as that. It is as simple as that. <laughs> it is as simple as that. John Fishlock, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. And for sharing your immense experience and wisdom with us. And yeah. uh, we look forward to having you back on the bomb. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's, there's so much more to talk about. There really is. It's a, it's a very extensive conversation that we can have and we could probably go on for, for weeks. Oh, we, we probably will. We've got some unfinished <laughs> music business that we need to attend to. From my side as well, John, thanks for coming through. Appreciate it. And, Absolute um, pleasure. Oh, fantastic stuff. Thank you. You're watching The Bomb. Check back next week. Mm -hmm.